it sounds really boring, but the strategy is to have a really fucking good product that works really well and will give you tokens and build community while we do it. You know, a lot of crypto is just have a ton of bullshit marketing and then put a product out and the product just underwhelms. We decided to focus on having a really good product first and then just let word of mouth do the rest. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a quick shout out to our new sponsor, Hexens, the most hardcore security team in Web3, pioneering in ZK and novel cryptography. Hexens is trusted by tier one projects like Polygon, including their new ZK EVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, and more. You'll hear more about them later in the episode, but they will be at booth 832 at Permissionless. So if you go up to them, be sure to say hi. And don't forget to mention Zero X Research when requesting a quote. Uh, and they will give you a free Web2 pen test with the purchase of an audit. Uh, you know, Speaking of that, I want to give a sh another opportunity for the listeners. 30% uh, discount code using 0x30. Uh, if you are looking to go to Permissionless, it is in a little under a month now, September 11th through 13th. Uh, in Austin, Texas. It's going to be a ton of fun. The whole research team will be there. And we are pumped for the great speaker lineup as well. We just got word that Vitalik will be doing a virtual panel there. Uh, so again, it's going to be one hell of a conference. Really looking forward to that. Jumping into today's episode, we have a good interview with Darius and Alwyn from Vertex Protocol, a nice perp dex being built on top of Arbitrum. Um, and before we jump into that interview, as always, we are joined uh, by some of the BlockWorks research analysts to jam on the latest market happenings with a game of Hot Seat Cool Throne. Today, we got Ren, Pibbles, and Effort Capital. Uh, maybe, Ren, I'll throw things over to you first to kick us off. I have researchers in general uh, on the Hot Seat this week. Um, there was an LVR space or loss versus rebalancing space that was basically trying to hash out how to figure out... Um, to solve loss versus rebalancing, which is one of the largest issues plaguing liquidity providers in Uniswap V3. Over the course of the space, basically researchers took like one and a half hours to barely come to the definition of LVR itself. And there's just a lot of back and forth and not, not specific for this space. I, I want to say researchers in general, just like to do this thing where they make up words and then make everything a lot more complicated. Um, so whether that's talking about rollups, fraud proofs, CK, whatever, finality, like mo most often Ethereum related, um, it seems like researchers have a really, really fun time just debating endlessly about semantics on Twitter or through blog posts. And I'm not sure how much value that provides, you know? Sure, I, I do agree. Like we have to come to a conclusion on what the problem at hand that people are trying to solve is, but it feels like everyone's just more interested in being correct or sort of like circle jerking each other. Going back to the LVR space specifically, right? Um, not exactly targeted at the speakers for that space, but with Uniswap X, Uniswap V4, you know, Uniswap X, I think some can see that as Uniswap itself giving up on solving the AMM LVR problem and just going straight to an RFQ model. And similar to Uniswap before, right? Rather than Uniswap themselves trying to solve that problem, Uniswap is asking the community to help solve that problem for them. And I think that's another trend that we've seen recently, actually. Like, like a lot of protocols are banking on like researchers or external research teams to sort of help them figure out the problems rather than trying very hard at doing that 
doing it themselves. It's, it's not that I don't think they're interested. It's just that the problems that they were trying to solve are so complicated. You really need the brain power of the entire community to come together, right? Um, but I don't know. At least for us researchers, it can be kind of confusing sometimes because you read about something, and I think this happens the most often with rollups. And you, you thought you knew like how rollups work, um, what people are actually talking about, and then you read one Twitter thread and one blog post, and you are back at square one. You have no clue what is happening again. And yeah, it's just that's why I'm putting them on the hot seat this week. And nothing against them; they're solving important problems. <laughs> Yeah, that was funny, right? When you mentioned uh, the mental massaging that goes on to change definitions and whatnot, L2s came straight to my mind. I feel like that's always going on over there in that space. But what was your takeaway from the LVR space? What's the what's the TLDR on LVR? And I mean, what's the leading idea on how to fix it? Yeah, um, without going too much into the definition of LVR, because I walked away with a slightly confused definition to me. I've had a bit of discussion with other people I'm following, but the, the easy, super simple way to think about it is it's the cost to liquidity providers when external actors are able to rebalance liquidity at a better execution price, most often on a SEX versus the DEX's liquidity itself. There's like some other like definitions that kind of get squeezed in there, some theoretical, some practical. For example, there's this concept of like realized spread, which introduces like markouts from TradFi market making and looking at where your price is executed versus where the price is for, uh, for example, like five minutes later. But LVR, there's two main solutions to try to solve that, right? The first is an auction mechanism. The second is dynamic fees. Both of them have their like unique trade-offs and I think there are teams working on both of them simultaneously, and I don't think they are mutually exclusive solutions. Like it's very possible that you can have auctions plus dynamic fees, um, but I don't think anyone is close. I'm very excited to see dynamic fees sort of come into play with Uniswap V4 and hooks, and perhaps auctions potentially come into play with hooks. But also, I feel like that will probably take a bit longer and come a few years down the road like there's a lot more infrastructure that needs to be figured out with auctions and designing like a fair and open auction mechanism especially when you consider that running an auction sort of like affects everyone downstream of the mev supply chain including searchers builders proposers and whatnot what's the value add of measuring versus rebalancing though like okay if i'm just thinking you know let's say i'm just uh you know, a passive DeFi user and I have $500 of ETH and $500 of USDC. And I want to throw that into a uni V3 pool at a certain rate. Let's, let's not make it complicated. Let's actually use a uni V2 pool at a certain range. Like I, I was never going to rebalance that position in the first place. So is LVR even a fair metric to be determining what my like loss in this sense is? I think it's still fair in the sense that there is value being captured out of the liquidity pool that you are not getting any share to. Like, sure, before you could argue that, like, before MEV was a thing, like in a Uni V2 pool, like, no one was really doing cross like sex index arbitrage. And so, like, there isn't that much value being lost in that sense. But now that value is being captured by someone else, I think the argument has sort of become some of that value should be returned to the liquidity providers because without them, that value wouldn't sort of exist. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. Yeah. And then 
what's the like i get how dynamic fees make more sense right if you're trading at a super volatile time then chances are you'll get a larger arbitrage so you should be getting charged more um and also trading against size seems to be a, a fairly common way to deter against this so if you have like a massive trade coming through after a series of small trades like that's likely the arbitrage trade so making that user pay more uh kind of hits there as well so the, the dynamic fee, fee thing especially based around volatility makes a lot of sense to me uh but what about the auction mechanism can you like explain potentially what that would look like yeah, sure. So I think the simplest implementation of an auction is that on Ethereum, there are 12 second block times. So basically whoever is able to capture the price change on a sex within that 12 second block time probably makes the most money within the block, right? Um, most often you want to be the first to submit that transaction. So that's known of top of block. Um, and basically you can run a simple auction whether through like a Uniswap V4 hook or like do some like protocol enforcing, that's a completely different discussion, but you can auction off the right to be the first trade in a liquidity pool. And basically whoever is bidding on that would bid for the right to sort of arb out the price difference that's occurred in the previous 12 seconds. And that's like the simplest possible implementation of an auction mechanism. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Uh, we got to have somebody on the pod that can walk us through what like a, that would look like at a super complex level. But uh, effort capital, who you got in the hot seat or cool throne this week? Yeah, I have <clears throat> I have the Cosmos Hub, surprisingly, uh, and the community on the hot seat uh, instead of typically the cool throne where, where I'm, when I'm usually on here, uh, bull posting or bull talking about the Cosmos ecosystem. So uh, this past week, uh, the community is currently like actively voting on Prop 818. Uh, the, the exact title of this prop is Punish Equivocation of Neutron by Puffmos and Citizen Cosmos. So just give a little context and backstory. Um, right now, uh, earlier this year, the Cosmos Hub went live with Interchain Security. V1 is called Replicated Security. What that allows the Cosmos Hub to do is provide security as a service. Essentially, it's like Eigenlayer does ETH restaking where it extends Ethereum security to other middleware protocols. Um, Cosmos Hub is able to pretty much leverage its active validator set and the Atom stake to the hub to secure other chains called consumer chains uh, around the hub. The first consumer chain for the hub is Neutron, which is like a Cosmosm generalized smart contracting platform. Uh, what ended up happening was about a week and a half ago, there was a rolling upgrade uh, of Neutron um, where all these validators were pretty much obviously expect to upgrade Neutron to the latest version uh, Two validators during this rolling upgrade that was unplanned, actually uh, ended up double signing a block. So typically in proof of stake networks, this is a no-no, it's a penalty. If you double sign a block, uh, I think Ethereum has some type of slashing mechanism. Uh, with Cosmos chains, if you double sign, not only do you get slashed, there's also a potential uh, possibility of tombstoning that validator. With tombstoning means permanently banning them from the active set, which is a really big deal. Uh, replicated secure so typically if, if you do double sign you're tombstoned and you're slashed uh with replicated security when it went live it didn't allow for uh automated slashing uh by of validators if they double signed or do something nefarious to a consumer chain the reason being is because it's very new tech and the concern was what if a consumer chain accidentally uh slashed validators when they didn't do anything wrong so it was kind of supposed to be like a false positive signal um, the idea of being the consumer chain would uh, accidentally slash and, and put in harm's way the entire Cosmos Hub security proposition uh, due to, again, like a, a false slashing event. 
the way that replicate security launched was uh, allowing governance to decide whether or not a validator or validators should be slashed. Uh, how this would work is um, a validator would do something bad on Neutron. Uh, a message over IBC would be sent to the Cosmos Hub saying, hey, Cosmos Hub community, validator A did XYZ bad. And then there'd be a governance proposal brought to the community to vote on whether or not to slash or, or unslash. So that's exactly the situation we're in right now. So two validators during this rolling upgrade double signed a block. They're currently being asked, uh, or the Cosmos Hub community is currently being asked whether or not to slash these uh, two validators or not. Um, our current understanding of the situation and the community's understanding is that these two validators did not maliciously intent with intent to like double sign these, these blocks. These just accidentally happened mostly due to poor operator, uh, I guess, best practices. So there's certain things that they could have done uh, during this rolling upgrade so that they didn't accidentally double sign this block. There's over 180 validators. There are 180 validators in the active set for the Cosmos Hub today, and 178 of them did not double sign, but these two did. Um, and there's a, like a really contentious debate right now as to whether or not to slash and tombstone these validators. Certain validators that think code is law thinks that they should be slashed because if this exact event happened on the Cosmos Hub, if like a validator double signed on the Cosmos Hub, they would have been automated slashed and tombstoned. Like, why aren't we taking this exact same approach um, and setting the exact same precedent for Cosmos for consumer chains, even though like replicate security is sort of on training wheels right now. But there's a lot of validators right now that are looking at this and going, well, the risk return from a for validating consumer chain is not worth it. They're not really generating a lot of revenue for the Cosmos Hub today. Um, and I don't want and the validators don't want to be penalized for, you know, non intentionally double signing or doing something else, uh, you know, negative to, to these consumer chains. So you see like a lot of back and forth about like what the right thing is to do. Um, I'm of the opinion that you know, just because you didn't intend to do something like in law, intent doesn't necessarily mean that you go off scot-free. God forbid, like if you accidentally, you know, kill someone while driving, uh, just because you intend to do it doesn't mean like there's a difference between murder and manslaughter, which is specifically around the intent of accidentally killing someone. Um, I think you got to set a precedent here that these validators should be slashed and maybe Neutron or like the consumer chain should reimburse the validator and maybe we should vote after slashing and tombstoning these validators to untombstone them and bring them back into the validator set. Like, I think it's very important to set a social precedent. Uh, but this ultimately, in my opinion, like can put the value prop of, of replicate security and interchange security uh, in harm's way. Like if the entire value prop of, of security from the hub is all based on a social vote or our governance vote, like I think that, you know, uh, loses the credible neutrality of like the security service that the hub offers. Um, I guess the light side of this conversation is that there is going to be a planned upgrade for replicated security in the coming months to have automated slashing. Uh, but it's just like unfortunate that this event is happening while replicated security is on, on training wheels. Uh, the, the Cosmos hub and the Cosmos community, I think really needs a big win. And like, this is of course just like a really bad thing to happen at like the wrong time, but as always, the hub is kind of testing and prod and showing, I guess, the rest of the crypto ecosystem, like what it looks like to have like a really tough, um, a really tough debate, uh, because typically like this on-chain governance is not a thing in, in Solana and, and Ethereum and other ecosystems. But I think there's a lot of lessons learned that like Eigenlayer and other shared security models are, are going to take from this uh, event in the Cosmos Hub.
what are the implications of like what happened on Neutron when there was this double sign transaction? Like, is that akin to uh, like a double spend or what's the TLDR on a double sign? No. So I think a double spend would actually have to happen if over 33% of the vote power actually like all double signed and, uh, you know, actually caused like a double spend attack for the hub. Oh, I'm sorry, for, for Neutron or a consumer chain. Um, to be honest, I don't know the exact like thing that went wrong. Like if these two validators did double sign, I don't think any of the state was actually messed up for Neutron. Um, I don't think there's anything that actually like negative happened uh, to Neutron itself, but I think it's the unfortunate event that they did double sign, you know, they could have been, they could have been malicious in doing so. We know for a fact that they weren't in this case, uh, but it's just like the act of potentially trying to double sign a block is usually what's frowned upon in proof of stake networks. I think my take here is that obviously like there's different security mechanisms or different layers of security for like different things in crypto where there's like a blockchain or like a middleware or like a dApp or like a rollup. But for something that sits at like kind of like the highest level of like interchange providing interchain security or even like ETH mainnet security, right? And being a validator for that, I would always err to the side of slashing first and then having someone like a Vettel committee come in later and potentially undo that slash just because for these systems that purely depend or largely depend on like crypto economic security, like you need to have that guarantee that the slashing is going to happen instantaneously um, or like it's within the code, right? And then maybe, sure, like you don't have to slash and then like immediately burn it. You can like move stuff to a community owned like wallet and then there's like a committee of some sort that sort of votes on whether this slashing is vetted or like it goes to. And I think I just kind of described Eigenlayer's vetted committee and it's ironic that initially when I saw that company, I was like, wait, I don't really like the idea that there's a committee to do that. So I'm kind of torn in between now. <laughs> it, it's funny because like to your point, Eigenlayer takes a, pe takes a pessimistic approach. Slash first, ask questions later. The hub took an optimistic approach, which was the validators are optimistically like they're probably not doing anything nefarious, they're probably not being malicious. So let's give them the benefit of the doubt and let governance ultimately decide and put social consensus to the test. Probably was probably not the right thing to do in, in hindsight. You probably should have slashed first, asked questions later, because again, if these validators did this on the Cosmos hub or if an osmosis validator double signed, they would have been slashed immediately. So I don't know why we're not extending those exact same rules that we already have in place and what the precedent is for other Cosmos chains to to this exact case. But um, I think the problem is that there was communication between Neutron and, and some of the Cosmos hub validators that this would not this upgrade would not be a slashable offense and that they would kind of have a jail, get out of jail free card in the event of anything happening. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Uh, and now these questions, these two validators are, are potentially being um, slashed. So. I, I know where I firmly stand on this, but it's definitely like a hotly debated topic in the ecosystem right now. Um, obviously, a lot of validators are concerned about whether or not they should even be validating Neutron moving forward or another consumer chain uh, because the risk is is potentially not worth it. So um, really interesting time, in, I guess, in, in the Cosmos ecosystem's uh, journey. When's this go up for vote? So it's currently being voted on. It went up... Uh, I think Zaki actually put it up for vote, but it went up for vote on the 9th and the it ends on the 23rd. Those 14 day voting windows are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Pibbles, who you got in the hot seat or cool throne this week? Yes, yeah, so I got a cool throne. 
And this one's on a seven day voting period, not a 14 day voting period. So we like to get things done on the Ethereum ecosystem. Uh, I've got Frax coming in with FinRes PBC. We picked this up in GovHub early last week. Uh, essentially, Frax has incorporated a not-for-profit C-Corp, and they're going to be able to custody treasuries, mint and redeem USDP, which is Paxos's stablecoin, and mint and redeem USDC. This is a pretty big step for Frax towards their V3, because the Frax stablecoin really died down over the past year or two. Like I think all-time high market cap was like 2.6 bill. And now it's sitting at 800 million. And, you know, most of that is just protocol owned for sure. Um, so this is a big step in actually trying to get some usage for the Frax stablecoin. We don't know what else is coming out for V3, but it's rumored that the full release will be this month. Um, so just a really uh, bullish catalyst for FXS. And it's, it's awesome that we flagged this beforehand and there will probably be a lot more governance stuff popping up in the near future. Yeah, Sam Martin couldn't uh, join us for this this recording today, but I'll, I'll in his honor, I'll give a good strong agree there, uh, Pipples. This is uh, this is really big for Frax. They needed to figure out an RWA strategy. Sam K, their protocol founder, made that very clear that there has to be some sort of RWA thing. They just hadn't really figured out what it seemed like the approach was going to be. Um, and they're kind of siloing everything within this one entity. So this FinRes PBC, where this is kind of in contrast to Maker's approach, where you know you have like five or six entities that you're working with to create these RWA deals and uh, ultimately back die with uh, these T-bills. Um, so there's like a, two ways to look at that. One is you know, siloing everything within this one entity should really make for ease of reporting and management and maintenance of these positions. Uh, but on the other side of the aisle, you'd say, okay, well, siloing within one entity while it creates efficiencies, it also condenses your risk. And if FinRes PBC fails to do anything important, uh, then everything comes down crashing. So uh, I'm really not entirely sure where I sit on on that debate specifically because you know there really isn't any creation history to FinRes PBC. It's a newly incorporated uh, newly created entity. We don't really know who exactly is managing it. it just seems to be some extension of the Frax team, uh, which Sam K kind of kept his uh, his you know his statement can uh, congruent with like everything else he says. It's like, look, when you use Frax, you're already exposed to the core team. When you you're already like that's why they have their Frax ferry because you're they're just adding another protocol within the ecosystem. There's no like external reliance, and this is like kind of that same thing. If you're using Frax, you're already relying on the core team to kind of create this product. Um, so FinRes PBC is simply just the the next extension of that into the real world asset side. So. Uh, you know, personally, I'm curious about like who the people that are actually sitting on this board for this entity are like actually managing these positions and making these deals and converting crypto into assets. Uh, I know they mentioned their partner on this was Paxos, which is a very solid partner, in my opinion. I think that's exactly the type of person you want to or group that you want to see uh, helping create this thing. And they have like a really clever me mechanism on how they can pass assets or back and forth between FinRes and the Frax protocol DAO itself. Um, it's like using USDP, right? Because FinRes uh, itself has the ability to mint and burn both USDC and USDP, I believe it was. So uh, because of that, then they can, if they want to pass revenue back to the DAO, uh, they just simply convert uh, yield from T-bills into one of those two stable coins, mint them through the Circle or Paxos themselves, and then one one transfer to the to the 
protocol treasury. And there you go. So I really like their system. Honestly, I'm excited to see this thing come to life. I know Frax V3 is going to have a lot of, a lot of cool tricks to it. So I'm excited to see they, they're kind of beasts in the, uh, the tokenomics game. So I'm, I'm excited personally. Yeah. And then you have this comboed with the actual Frax gov module, which has been in audit for a few months and that's lining up as another catalyst for FXS. And um, it's finally going to be a fully on-chain governed system. And I think it's truly something that's going to be competitive with compounds governance module. So a lot of fun stuff on the horizon. I think there are a few things that excite me about this Frax FinRest PPC. The first is that if I'm not wrong, the treasury bond naturally converts to Frax upon expiry of the bond. And I think that should be a natural driver of growth over the long term. I'm not sure what like the duration of the bonds that they're going to invest in are, but I think that'll probably provide some sustainable demand for Frax itself. And the second thing is, someone correct me if I'm wrong here, is that they're going to run the same two token model with Frax Eve with the Frax bonds product. And I do think that'll open up some interesting opportunities, both in terms of like higher yield from the two token model, but also from sort of like a similar loop trade where you mint like this fax bond it has an inherently higher yield than whatever the cost of borrowing is then you borrow more and then you sort of mint more and like that whole thing that was pure speculation by by me <laughs> I, I don't know if that's the case but i i mean it makes sense right like with their frax eth stake frax eth model they're able to separate the spot demand for the asset to like actually hold frax ether um versus the yield bearing side i haven't checked on the distribution between the amount of frax ETH staked as staked frax ETH, but um, that's something to monitor. But I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me, right? Like in this scenario, you do have the same like spot asset with frax itself and the ability to accrue yield through these RWA deals. So it would be kind of interesting, nonetheless. And that kind of gives you the ability to like juice the yields, right? If you only have three percent, but then only half the supply is opted into it, well, you can take that three percent and make it six percent for the for the, those that are interested in it. So. Um, it is a smart mechanism. I, I don't know if that's what they're going to do here, though. You know, Paxos is probably a big winner here. I mean, between what they're doing with Frax, what they're doing with Pyongyang USD or PayPal's USD token, uh, they're like in, in a crazy world, you might actually, I know you guys spoke about uh, PYUSD last week. Will PayPal USD try to incentivize Frax in order to drive more liquidity to PYUSD? And make that a dominant stablecoin to compete compete against like USDC and Tether, very possible. Um, it'd be really interesting to see like what those dynamics look like in, in the next bull cycle. Uh, but as a notable like Frax bear, typically amongst like the Blockbush Research group, I'm actually really excited about this. I think real world assets like are the future of finance. Um, I think the Frax team is like extremely capable. But I think what I've had trouble with historically is them. Uh, doing too much at once and not having like a core product as like their killer feature. I think they have all really good products. They're building out a really good suite, but none of their products I think is like a number one or number two. Uh, it's usually like number three or number four in like any one category. But I think this partnership with Paxos uh, and their overall setup looks really promising and could really compete with MakerDAO. Um, so th this is awesome and i'm i'm honestly turning bullet fracks you heard it here first effort capital has flipped with news of the rwa injection into fracks <laughs> uh but i'll close this out here with a final cool throne uh this one uh is close to my heart 
Thorchain is the first protocol I really like. That's what roped me into crypto. The beautiful tokenomic design they have was what woke my eyes up. I was like, damn, okay, like tokens are very interesting tools that you can use to bootstrap use of your protocol. Uh, and I'm putting them in the cool throne this week with the release of their new lending market. So real quickly, Thorchain is a cross-chain cross DEX um, that basically uses a validator set to manage vaults on a series of connected networks. By doing this, they're the only bridge that I'm aware of that can uh, in include bit native Bitcoin within this architecture and system. Uh, and so that kind of gives them this edge that nobody has really been able to figure out yet. And with that, they kind of said, okay, well, we've got the DEX thing under control. Like, let's keep building onto this thing. Similar, like, you know, you've seen Curve do this. Uh, and now we're also seeing it in another DEX. And this kind of enables the idea that the, they wanted to effectively like inject leverage into the system. And by doing so, you can borrow any L1 gas token. So I think Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the blue chip gas tokens um, at no interest, no liquidation, and against any supported asset on the network. So for example, you could post Bitcoin collateral in native BTC and borrow, let's say, USDC on Ethereum. And so the loan to LTV ratio that you get uh, it depends on the pool depths. So you get a lower collateral collateralization rate with less utilization. So it kind of creates this incentive to be first. Like if I'm the first one in, I can get a very generous loan. Uh, whereas if you're like the, you know, one of the people at the end of the line, you're going to get a worse LTV ratio. Uh, and so Rune is burned when loans are opened in this, in these, this mechanism. Uh, and admittedly, I still have some reading to do on exactly how this whole design works, but essentially the protocol takes on the liability of repaying collateral when the loans are closed. So it's like a net benefit is realized when Rune appreciates faster than collateral assets. And that's because again, when I go and open a loan, uh, a portion of that loan gets burned in rune. And then when I close the loan, some of that rune or a, a dynamic amount of rune is minted again. So there is the potential where let's say I open the loan, which burns a hundred rune. And then based on price changes, uh, actually when I go to close this loan, it'll actually mint 110 rune. And now I've created like this net inflationary period. So that does definitely set off some alarm bells to a lot of people of like this whole death spiral risk. I think a lot of us are still scarred from the Luna days when uh, the huge unwind kind of just created this mass, mass supply increase where Luna basically infant in, or inflated towards infinity, honestly. Uh, but there are circuit breakers and to limit the exposure to this risk. And, um, that's admittedly where my reading needs to <laughs> occur is like exactly how the, these mechanisms can kind of control that. You know, we had a great episode with Chad Barraford, one of the lead devs over there. Gosh, it was probably like eight months ago now, and we need to get him back on for a follow-up just because of how cool and novel this mechanism is. Uh, and ultimately to discuss the risks, because I think there is this really interesting situation that's unfolding, but Again, Rune has these extremely exciting tokenomics that ties the deterministic value of Rune to the value of the non-Rune liquidity in the pools on the network. Uh, and so obviously, again, when you open up these loans, uh, you deposit Bitcoin into the network, you increase the amount of non-Rune liquidity in the network, you, so you improve the amount of trading that can be done, uh, and you also improve the um, this is this is some number go up technology, guys. We, we got it back. So uh, again, if it's I need to do more research on the actual risks that are at play here, but I am extremely excited about the new lending market on Thorchain. Yeah, just to jump in, I'm not an expert on the lending markets themselves. I was kind of reading the docs this morning. It sounds like the only way, it's betting 
the Thor chain is betting on Rune outperforming any of the borrowed assets uh, that that uh, a user deposits, or, or I guess is it thinks that Rune's going to outpace Bitcoin, ETH, any of the collateral assets that are deposited into the protocol. It's pretty much taking the collateral that a user deposits and selling it and market buying Rune with it. And if as long as Rune outpaces the collateral asset that was deposited, Rune, the Thorchain protocol will remain solvent. In the event that the collateral asset that was deposited outperforms Rune and then a user goes to withdraw their collateral, what it's going to do at a system-wide level, let's say at system-wide Rune is insolvent, what it's going to do is it's going to mint Rune up until the max cap which I believe is programmed to 500 million rune. And in the event that minting up to the max cap does not make the system still solvent, what ends up happening is the borrowers of the pro from the protocol pretty much take a haircut. It's like they got liquidated effectively, but but you know there, there's not like a hard liquidation to like regular lending protocols point. But this kind of sounds like make it's like MakerDAO taking the collateral asset and just market buying maker with it and then being long maker. Uh, it's pretty interesting from a game theory perspective, because I guess you can argue like if the pro if the token doesn't go up, well, the pro is the protocol even going to be around for like a long term? Uh, it's like taking a really long directional bet on its own asset. Uh, it's, it's definitely number go up technology, I think, because it needs to go up in order for this to work. Um, I guess the only difference between that and like Luna is that Luna couldn't mint to inf infinite amounts. So I think it, it's going to be really interesting to see like how this plays out, what the, uh, I guess like the solvency mechanism looks like for, for Rune. I don't really understand like the lending lever that they talked about. Uh, so I'm kind of in the same boat as you, Dan. Like I don't understand it fully, but like high level, it some good Ponzi tech, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I think they need to court Igorov and Justin Sun to get over there and uh, start putting it to the test. And then uh, we can be there to short it whenever that time comes, whether it's six months or a year from now. But lots of ways to make money on this. So that's fun. First of all, nothing that anyone said is financial advice. Please don't go by and buy market and market by Rune. Um, Second of all, I think that's a new phrase that I'm going to use when something seems shady as hell and I have no under, no clue how the risk management works. I'm just going to say, this has interesting game theory mechanics. Uh, <laughs> I think I'm, I'm curious. I have a question for you, Dan, if, if you know the answer. like, Is this lending market effectively like double dipping into the liquidity for like the cross-chain solves or is it still in some sense siloed? I, I don't I guess I don't totally know what you mean by double dipping, but effectively like the way it happens is like, okay, let's say I take Bitcoin to the network to open a loan. Uh, when I deposit the Bitcoin, it will be swapped into Rune. And then like, let's say I had like a 200% CR, 50% LTV, um, then 5K Rune would be burned. Let's just say my, my Bitcoin was worth 10 grand, the amount of Bitcoin I deposited. And then $5,000 worth of, of that rune will be burned and the other 5,000 will be used to be like swapped into USDC. Um, and then that is the piece that like I will take as the borrower. So the idea is that like the protocol has shifted off the risk onto effectively the rune holders. That's who is, is taking the bet here in my, in my view. So it is possible that if there's some like really lopsided demand for like borrowing or lending something, then like the underlying liquidity proves that power at Dorchain also become imbalanced. 
Uh, well, there's always an arbitrage opportunity between the liquidity pools across the network, and there they do a, a quite a good job of actually staying balanced. So, like when a large borrow does come in, yes, there's a rebalance that needs to take place, but uh, there's like really good arbots that seem to be hooked up to Thorchain and, and kind of maintain that ratio. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's going to be interesting to watch this play out again. Like I, it's like one of those novel moments. Honestly, honestly, for me, it was like when I was reading Curve's new lending model. I was like, all right, like. There's a lot to unpack here, and I'm just scratching the surface, honestly, today. Um, so I'm excited to dive deeper on this and, and really figure out, is this thing sustainable? But there are, like, interesting throttle mechanisms to the to the death spiral point. Like, you can always open new loans, but when you go to close loans, basically during times of volatility or, like, a lot of closing of loans, you're going to it's like a throttle mechanism. So you'll get a smaller amount of your collateral back if you try to unwind your position at a inopportune time for the protocol so like yes there's no liquidations and there's no interest payments but you might get stuck in it depending on when you're trying like i don't know there's there's like the bank the bank run scenario here you would definitely want to be first and not last and if you are towards the end of the line i think the incentive theory is like you just won't close your loan uh, which does benefit the protocol, right? Because at the end of the day, it is a DEX and liquidity is king. So that's kind of the idea. It seems to be scaling the liquidity pools to drive more than to drive the swapping operation um, because there is no like revenue generation from the lending market itself. But that's probably a good stopping point for here. We've been we've been talking for quite some time now. So and I want to give another shout out to our new sponsor, Hexens. Definitely be sure to check them out at Permissionless or we'll include a link in the show notes of how to get in contact. Uh, and now onto the interview with Vertex Protocol. All right, everyone. We are joined by Darius and Alwyn. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so I was hoping you've already explained this a little bit on other uh, podcasts, but I do like to hear your guys' take uh, firsthand. I want to give that to our listeners. So can you explain kind of uh, what your ability building on Terra um, in the first iteration of Vertex and why you opted to build on Arbitrum instead of a Cosmos app specific chain. Like, I feel like that probably would have been the easier move from a, a development standpoint. On, on Terra, like the initial motivation was to make a multi-currency version of Anchor. Um, and then in order to do that, you want to like hedge out the currency risk. Um, so like you could earn like, I don't know, 16% APY on euros or some shit. Um, and in order to hedge out the currency risk, you want to have like liquid um, perpetuals markets. So that was sort of the initial thought, which is just have liquid perpetuals on Terra. Um, in terms of like why we picked Arbitrum, um, like, yeah, it would be a lot easier to just go to like another Cosmos chain. But like from the perspective of the team trying to like build a product that actually has users, um, Cosmos didn't seem like it was going to make it. Most, yeah, like the biggest chain on Cosmos sort of just went to zero in like a week. Um, so probably not a good idea to stick there. And I think that looking at like the Terra projects that like try to stay in the Cosmos ecosystem, um, yeah, leaving it was probably like a good decision. Um, in terms of like why Arbitrum specifically, uh, EVM is like sort of the, uh, it's sort of the runtime that just has the most TVL. Um, and like all the top blockchains all run EVM. So it seemed like a good way to be like fairly agnostic to what blockchain we were on and have like just a really good chance of whatever, of being able to build on something and having that work matter um, without like sort of getting rugged from underneath us by like the underlying chain being messed up. And Arbitrum happened to be like the 
most performant EVM chain at that time that also had like TBL. Awesome. Yeah. And then I was hoping just to get like more of a high level overview of like, what is Vertex? And uh, I guess a lot of people probably don't know about Vertex. So what is it and what makes it different from other margin DEXs in the space? Yeah. So like Vertex is sort of just like a futures exchange. that's like pretty capital efficient and fast and easy to use. Um, and then like, it's sort of also decentralized, but that's kind of like a side thing. Um, so really it's like you can go trade on Vertex as if you would trade on a centralized exchange. It takes like one click to do shit. Um, you know, if you're a market maker, you can get your orders placed on Vertex like in like 10 milliseconds or whatever. Um, so like, you know, I think we're actually like, we're like much faster than FTX was. Um, so like, that's really all we're doing. Like, central like something that looks like a centralized exchange feels like a centralized exchange but um just so happens to like be decentralized and so if we like take a layer and peel back peel back a layer here uh and look what's under the hood you know what is it about your design that makes you be able to be faster than ftx or be able to have these high performance speeds is it the hybrid order book amm that you're using uh or, or what exactly gives you that speed oh so like in terms of being faster than um ftx I don't think that's a function of like us being really good. That's more of a function of FTX not being like designed super well. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, the uh, the sort of just is a the sort of gist of it is that like um, having like a centralized server um, just makes things really performant because you don't have to wait for a consensus and stuff. Um, so the idea is like let's just make a compromise, right? Like users self custody their shit. Um, but we can process all trades and order placements like optimistically on our own server. Um, and that way it's not like you're not waiting for a light to travel from like different nodes to each other and all of them to reach consensus. Um, yeah, it's just like centralized servers are fast and we like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a, a big value add to a Vertex in particular is the cross margin account architecture, just kind of like offered by default. Can you guys kind of go into that and, you know, maybe talk about what cross margin accounts are and, and maybe why you think other margin DEXs in the space haven't attempted to implement it? Like, you know, the, the GMXs, the uh, DYDXs of the world. Um, so I think DYDX, like, I think they are cross margin, but they don't have like um, different like they don't allow you to use like BTC as collateral or whatever, but um, like it, it's just easier to implement isolated margin than um, cross margin. And something kind of tricky about cross cross margin is that we like we just have to care about all of our all of the products on Vertex for like every transaction. So it does get a bit tricky and like computationally expensive. Um, but the idea behind cross margin is that every single one of your assets is sort of pooled together and they all like um, count for each other. So you could have like ETH spot in an LP and have that collateralize your perp positions. So um, it just uh, widens the design space of the degenerate shit that you can do. I think as well, like a lot of users get in their head that cross margins more risky than isolated margin where I would argue kind of the opposite is true. You know, if you have a portfolio of random isolated margin trades, which would be the case, say, on the number of DEXs you might use, 
you end up with this like exposure to path dependency in a way that you don't really get with um, portfolio margin. So on Vertex, you know, if you've got a portfolio of longs and shorts, you can do that in a way that's far less likely to get stopped out and with less capital than you would be able to do on, say, a, even a GMX V2 or whatever, right? Because those isolated margin trades, you're liable to get stopped out when it goes up and stopped out when it goes down and you end up with no position. You might be right in the end, but it doesn't balance you out the way that we will on our risk engine. It's a fairly common design structure in like traditional markets. It's just not that common in crypto. I want to give a quick shout out to Hexens. As we explore today's blockchain landscape, let's take a moment to recognize them as a premier cybersecurity provider in Web3. Hexens is trusted by tier one projects like Polygon, including a security review on their new Polygon ZKEVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, Nubank, and more. Get a deep dive into your technology stack with the most comprehensive analysis and cybersecurity consulting. Hexens not only uses widely known methodologies and flows, but discovers and introduces new ones on a day-to-day -day basis. With over $55 billion secured, they cover everything from smart contracts to blockchain to Web2 pen tests. Yeah, there's been nearly $7 billion of total value hacked in crypto's nascent history, so it's safe to say your team has a lot on the line. Don't skimp out, take your security seriously, and reach out to Hexens. Don't forget to mention 0x Research for a free Web2 pen test with your partnership, and reach out to Hexens at hexens.io, find them in the links in the show notes, or reach out to them at Permissionless, they'll be at booth 832. Uh, but without further ado, let's get back to today's episode. Okay, interesting. And so you also, you know, you mentioned the use of like LP tokens uh, as collateral there. How are how is spot volume? How has spot volume been trading uh, on Vertex so far? And uh, any plans to kind of drive more volume there, as it's kind of essential for LPs? Or uh, you know, how do you think about? There's a huge discussion around LVR and how LPs helping is really not that profitable. Uh, are you? thinking about making this like a more profitable design space or is that just kind of something that's maybe way down the roadmap? Um, I think the short answer is it's way down the roadmap. Um, you know, at the moment we have four spot markets. Um, they do decent-ish volume, but I think you'll see when you look at any exchange, perps do way more volume than spot. And part of it's to do with capital efficiency. It's just more expensive from a capital perspective to do spot. Um, although we have leveraged spots, so it's easier. It's, it's still more expensive than doing perps. Um, the other thing is just like managing inventory and you have to be on a certain ecosystem. So for us, like we're on Arbitrum at the moment, we're not cross-chain. So getting inventory is just a pain in the ass. Like it's way easier to do perps. So at the moment we don't, um, but like Alvin and I have discussed a few times, like would there be a way we could design a more capital efficient AMM, you know, a similar kind of a product to a GLP that we could apply into Vertex. It's just down our list of priorities because at the moment we sort of get that synthetically, right, by incentivizing market maker liquidity. We've got like the best firms in the world make markets on Vertex. We incentivize them with our token and they just make really good top of book liquidity for people to trade against. And that's better than anything we could do with any sort of semi-algorithmic AMM type design like GLP. So would you say the primary use case for the AMM is just as a fallback mechanism in case the off-chain sequencer that facilitates the order back book goes down? Um, yeah, I would say so. And it's also sort of just like 
um, a decent place to like park your funds um, if you just want to like market make just like a one-click way to like grid trade. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Can you guys kind of explain what a user could expect in slow-mo mode, as you guys call it, when you, you know, the sequencer were to ever go down, um, you'd kind of fall back on just the, the contracts that reside on chain? Um, yeah, so we don't really expect that to, to happen like ever. Um, so like if we were to go down long enough for like slow-mo mode to matter, um, it probably... Like that means that we've just fucked up really bad as a company um and that like it sort of just makes like like at that point it's like yeah withdraw your funds these guys are idiots um but slow-mo mode will let you like withdraw your funds and like get out of the system so basically gives a way for things to end orderly if we were to not do our job properly and can you ex expand on like what, what do you mean by not do your job properly is that the sequencer going offline or like which piece of the the operation would fail in this case um yeah so the the way slimmer mode works is that like you can like so normally all transactions get pipelined through the sequencer and the sequencer submits them to the chain um you can also take your own transaction and write it to the chain directly in which case the sequencer can choose to process it immediately um, or after a certain delay, you could also just forcibly push that transaction through. Um, so what it would involve would be users like forcibly processing their withdrawals um, if the sequencer hasn't processed it in like, I don't know, like three hours or something. Okay, and you guys charge like a flat 10% fee, I believe, um, on trades as a sequencer fee, because obviously you're batching all those up and you need to settle them on Arbitrum. Um, is this like a, a revenue source for you guys? Like, do you ultimately, you know, make money off of those sequencer fees or yeah, I guess, is there a delta no. there? No, we don't. Um, in fact, we run a small loss on the sequencer. And, and just to clarify, like we don't- It's do 10 cents, not 10% as well, just to be 100% clear. Yeah. Um, I think you made a slight slip up, but yeah, it's 10 cents. <laughs> But basically, it's to kind of cover most of the costs, and it stops people sending like spam transactions to the sequencer. Um, but it's literally just there for that. We end up covering, I think, roughly thirty to fifty percent of the gas cost typically out of trading fees. Okay. Yeah, it's a bit of a weird structure um, for trading. It's just that like every match that we process, we have to pay a flat fee in gas. So we sort of have to propagate like a flat fee over to the user. And um, it's been adjusted a few times based on like the gas costs on Arbitrum. Um, but like, I'm like pretty confident in that number, like trending downwards over time um, as like, then, you know, like Arbitrum gets better or like other performing EVM chains come up. That makes a lot of sense. And definitely 10 cents, not 10%. I don't think many people would use Vertex if, if that was the case. <laughs> like $7 million this morning from that 10%. I'm also curious. So you guys want to decentralize that sequencer over time, I assume. Um, that's a problem that not even some of the, the best L2 teams have actually been able to solve. So what are you guys thinking there? Is that just like a ways down on the roadmap as well? Or is that a priority? And if so, like, what do you think the design will actually look like? So depending on the regulatory situation, um, like everything's sort of in flux, but like I, I can speak to like initial plans of um, how we would do something like that. So the first is that like, we're not trying to solve the same problem um, as like an L2 team, because they're trying to solve for like, um, like the general case. 
and for that it's like order matters a lot what we sort of care about is like it's reasonably decentralized and if it's like someone can move your transaction around in the space of like 10 milliseconds probably doesn't matter um so we're, we're just solving like a really different problem um, than they are and we would probably do something where like we have like a leading sequencer and um, that sequencer just outputs like a tape of like what it thinks the incoming orders are and other sequencers can sort of just check that order right so like what we can do is make sure that the leading sequencer isn't like cheating by um, not adhering to price time priority um, within that tape of orderings. What we can't do is ensure that the leading sequencer doesn't lie about um, that tape. But realistically, if your latency is like on the order of 10 milliseconds, which it is for us, then like, you know, the leading sequencer can only move things around um, kind of like front run shit. Um, inside of that 10 millisecond window. So that should be like sufficiently small um, such that it doesn't really matter. Okay, yeah, and you guys are able to achieve this low latency. I think it has a lot to do with uh, Stork, your Oracle Oracle provider. Um, I'm just curious why, why Stork? Is it just these exact needs that you guys need? And I'm also curious, like using a less battle-tested Oracle provider, any worries there? Um, so it's actually like a bit like... It's like a bit counterintuitive, but um, it's actually kind of nice to work with like a new Oracle provider because like they just give like really good customer support when they're like a startup and like we can pester them about like really dumb shit and they get back to us like instantly. Um, so that's like really nice. I have like serious doubts that like Chainlink would have like similar responsiveness. Um, in terms of like Stork's actual design, um, the way it works is that like they just generate a bunch of like prices off chain and then like they sign those prices and then like that can be validated on chain. Um, so that actually works really well with our architecture because um, we sort of know deterministically what price is going to be reported, right? So that allows us to sort of, that allows the state of our off chain matching engine to stay in sync with our on chain contracts at all times. Um, and then the other thing is like, it lets us pay gas to like check what the prices are and like push the prices like when we feel like it. So it just saves a lot of gas. Um, whereas like, for example, if we were to use something like Pith on Solana, um, every single time, like, you know, we'd have to like bridge that shit over wormhole and stuff. Like it's sort of kind of a mess. And Stork just does everything like really low latency, um, really low latency off chain, which is just really suitable to our use case. Super interesting. And just you mentioning, uh, you mentioning other chains got me thinking, like, do you guys have any interest in adding additional support for other chains or you guys want to stay on Arbitrum for the time being? Darius, do you want to answer that? I think ultimately we'd like to be able to provide assets across multiple chains. So it's kind of, um, again, it's like something we've discussed, the exact way we'll do it, we haven't decided on, but you can think of it like logically you want all your liquidity and trading to be happening in one place and you want all your capital on each account to be accounted for in one place as well to keep the capital efficiency. 
So that means if we were going to do a cross-chain uh, app, we wouldn't look like something like a Uniswap where you just fork the code and put a different version of the code on like 20 different chains. You're going to have to use a cross-chain messaging service like a wormhole to bring assets in, take deposits on different chains, bring them to Arbitrum, and then have a user account interacting with the Arbitrum instance of the protocol trade. And then anytime they want to withdraw, they withdraw to their home chain. So uh, it's quite a big piece of work, but Alwyn's probably the guy to do it, given that he worked on Wormhole previously and has exposure to this from previous roles. So um, we haven't got the exact plan mapped out, but we're pretty confident we can do something decent in that space. That's super interesting. I, I kind of like your approach there. Yeah, just because you mentioned Solana, that's like that was that was the one on my mind. Given the low fee environment, could be like attractive for building a, a DeFi application like this. Um, but that does definitely add some additional complexities around the cross chain messaging. Um, yeah, I'm just curious, like how would that UX look for the user? Like, given that there would be some latency if you have to use that cross chain messaging platform. Uh, yeah. so from so like I guess like. The way I would probably design it would be like, so, so the way we validate signatures right now, uh, the, the way everything's set up is that like most of the things that people sign don't end up like on chain. It sort of just goes to our matching engine directly. Um, so like they don't actually have to sign a transaction for like um, Arbitrum in theory, right? So the ideal UX would be they sign in on, let's say, um, optimism, they have to send the transaction on optimism to deposit. And then on the back end, we bridge that shit to Arbitrum. They are not exposed to the bridge in UX at all. Um, and then it might take like a bit longer for the bridged funds to arrive. So let's say on the order of like two minutes to go from optimism to Arbitrum. And then after that, they can just like trade normally as if it was like a centralized exchange. Um, yeah. And then in like a super ideal world, it would be like almost a cross-chain wallet so they could like log in on the same wallet on like Arbitrum withdraw their funds or something like that. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I'm definitely excited to see how you guys uh, progress on the cross-chain strategy. I feel like there's a lot of opportunity across various chains, so I feel like that's an important piece. But I did want to ask too about the the liquidation engine and just kind of the risk engine in, risk engine in general. How does that work under the hood? Because ultimately that's going to be pretty important considering you know, the, the leverage involved and, you know, some of the synthetic leverage that's enabled on Vertex. Every single asset sort of like has like, like a weight, I guess. And then um, the weight is sort of just like a penalty on its value. So like we have like a concept of like how much health your account has. Um, and then we just add up the value of all of your assets. And then depending on the risk of that asset, the values like decremented a bit to account for your health. And then if your health drops below zero, you get liquidated. And then we try our best to do like a good job when it comes to like not listing assets that are um, yeah, particularly risky um, for the exchange. And so what would those health, uh, health factors kind of look like? You know, maybe something comparing like uh, ETH to, to something like MKR, which you've recently added. USDC would be one, right? Because you know, USDC is just one USDC. That's the base asset that we use. Um, and then um, BTC is like 0 0.95, 
and then you can say what MKR is. It's 0.9. So converting it back into leverage, like you can get up to 20 to one leverage on BTC perps and you can get 10 to one leverage on uh, maker perps. So if you look across the space, like we're on the conservative end, I would say, as far as leverage goes. Um, and then we have slightly more conservative leverage ratios with the collateral assets. So if you're doing spot, you get less leverage because obviously that becomes the underlying thing that's like underpinning the portfolio. The perp, we can just kind of liquidate one user into another. But with the spot assets, you want to be a bit more conservative in terms of what people are holding and what actually sits in the system because that's what kind of underpins the whole credit structure of the exchange. And if I wanted to take part in liquidations, like how exactly would I do that? Uh, you would have to spin up like your own liquidation bot. So it's not like, I think like we have like our own liquidator. I'm not, we've definitely shared it with people, but I'm not sure if it's like a public repository just yet. Um, like, to be honest, like you would have to be like somewhat technical to do it right now. Yeah, I feel like that's pretty standard across the space. Honestly, you need a little bit of technical expertise to do that. How is the the risk engine fared so far? I know you put out a good thread, Alwyn, on uh, the day XRP news got released and it went up like 70% or so. So it'd be great to hear a little bit more on that end. Oh, thanks. I didn't know you followed me on Twitter. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. But uh, um, I mean, it's been it's been going pretty good. Like, I don't think we've had like a single day where the insurance fund has gotten drawn down. So um, we have like this summary bot, which just tells me um, the status of everything. Um, so the insurance fund is up like $15,000 since inception. And then the liquidator that we run is up like $16,000 since inception. Um, so really like over the course of all of these like various ups and downs, um, you know, liquidators made money, the insurance fund, um, made money. Um, yeah. Like the way our system is set up is like, um, we just run our own instance of the, uh, the matching engine, like a separate standoff instance that like, is like maybe like 50 milliseconds behind the matching engine. And then that's just constantly looking for like accounts that can be liquidated. Um, so like when like the price moves, um, it might be like, like we should liquidate most accounts within like a few seconds tops. Um, so it's like pretty robust. And you mentioned the insurance fund there. How is the, is that, uh, is like a portion of trading fees used to fund that account? Um, so whenever, like, so the way we do liquidations is, um, say you're underwater and you have some Bitcoin. Um, you're long a bunch of Bitcoin. So when I try to liquidate that Bitcoin, it just means that I buy that Bitcoin from you and I give you some USDC. And um, the price that I buy the Bitcoin from you at is computed using the Oracle price of Bitcoin. And I get like a slight discount. Um, and that's what incentivizes me to liquidate you. And a part of that gap between the Oracle price and the price that's computed, like the liquidation price, is sent to the insurance fund. And at what point would this insurance fund be tapped into? Like, what is its use for? Um, so sometimes, like, like when an account goes underwater or something, um, yeah, like, 
some of the funds from insurance would be used to top up that account. I think that there have been cases where accounts did go underwater during like um, the XRP stuff. So like some money went from the insurance fund into those accounts. So like when I, so like, um, I guess it's like once I've completely finished liquidating you, um, so like I've bought all of your assets and I've paid off all of your liabilities. And then it turns out that you still have one liability, like negative 500 USDC and like nothing else. Um, in that case, 500 USDC will come out of the insurance fund um, to reset your account. Okay. And if the insurance fund can't make up that difference, is it amortized across the holders of the same asset within that account that has a negative balance? Yeah. So if your liability is like, um, let's say negative five BTC spot, then it's amortized across all holders or all depositors of that spot token. If it's like a perp position and you're like down bad, um, then it's amortized across like participants in that perp market. Okay, gotcha there. And earlier you mentioned uh, some similarities with the Mango markets uh, that was built on Solana. So I'm curious, you know, that obviously suffered a pretty bad uh, exploit or attack, whatever you want to call it. How is that avoidable on Vertex? I don't think that hack was a function of like a like a shitty model. Um, I think that hack was like a function of like shitty parameters um, within that model. Um, so like, yeah, we're, we're not going to like list vrtx and have like an unreasonable amount of leverage that you can take on it if you look at all the assets we've listed so far we're kind of focused on doing things that have pretty decent depth and liquidity to them well-established products um at the same time like we obviously look at that and we have like a whole list of things that we implement or we discuss risk or you know alwyn and i might game like various scenarios and say okay how can we guard against this in the future? It's just a constantly evolving thing. I don't think our risk framework will ever be finished. But as Alwyn said, in the first instance, not listing your own illiquid exchange token on a fairly high collateral value, probably a good risk measure. And then, you know, there's a lot of wrong way risk there with that token being on the exchange and leveraged and using collateral. Um, but, you know, there's a ton of other things we can do and look at yeah. that we'll implement over time. Um, separately, like, uh, hacks are actually one of the places where, like, this off-chain sequencer actually, like, benefits us a lot, right? Um, so what happens is, like, you know, in our sequencer, if someone, if we see, like, massive withdrawals and stuff, like, we know of that shit beforehand and we have like the timeout, like the slow-mo timeout to like actually respond. So like if someone, if we see like a withdrawal come through for like a hundred million dollars, like that is going to get flagged because that's like pretty strange. Um, and it's sort of like the guy can try and push through that withdrawal, but like we kind of have like three hours to figure out like what exactly is going on. Um, so we just have like, an additional delay where we can be like um pretty responsive it's not like oh in one blockchain transaction you just get fucked yeah that that makes a lot of sense um i think probably not listing your illiquid native token with high leverage is, is probably a good move <laughs> um but i did want to ask too so i feel like dydx like kind of got big and a lot of traction because they they were kind of like the first perps decks that did like a really big airdrop that like 
ended up well for its users. And then if you look at GMX, like the fees are super high, but people love that, you know, token because the yield is so good paid out in ETH and escrow GMX. So because of the high fees, I mean, you're paying, I was looking at it the other day. It's like on every $10,000 of volume on GMX, you're paying like $20 of fees and on Vertex, you're paying like two. So it's 10 times cheaper to trade on Vertex. Um, but I guess I'm just wondering for you guys, like you're not the first, um, and you're also not going to be generating the most revenue until you reach scale. So I guess like, what is the strategy for, um, I guess, bootstrapping, staying power in a moat? I think the roadmap is like, we're still in like version 0 0.5, 0 0.6, if you like, of our product offering. You know, we launched three months ago. We don't have a liquid token. We have an incentive program. We've been very clear about our airdrop strategy. So our airdrop will be incredibly generous, but it's based on trading activity. So if you're a user, you come to Vertex, you trade, you're helping us build a product and we'll reward you with our exchange token for your trouble. Now, I don't think the whole community picked up on quite how generous our token program is. So we're airdropping like 9% of tokens in October. Um, there's some bells and whistles around how that airdrop will occur, which will become public in due course. But the truth is by the end of that airdrop, we'll have a liquid token. So people will now be able to put a price on what the incentives are worth. We'll have, I think one of the best products out there. If you look at goes through from speed convenience, which obviously like Alwyn and the back team have built out. So it's really fast. It's super capital efficient. You can do spot, you can do perps all in one place. And then on the front end, we've really worked hard to make the UI UX super accessible, easy to understand. And we just can you continue to smash away at that. So it sounds really boring, but the strategy is to have a really fucking good product that works really well. And we'll give you tokens and build community while we do it and i think people will respect that it's not you know a lot of crypto is just have a ton of bullshit marketing and then put a product out and the product just underwhelms we decided to focus on having a really good product first and then just let word of mouth do the rest so we're still in that process it's starting to build you know like you found us, I think, through word of mouth. Other people have come to us through word of mouth. There's way more value in that. I think you get recommended by people you believe in who like our product than there is in just paying for a ton of people to shill your shit on Twitter. Yeah, that's a, a sobering take. I like it. <laughs> Build the product, get <laughs> iteration, then give people a token. It's uh, refreshing to hear that. Um, you did uh, talk about the, the VRTX, like token airdrop and token incentive program. Can you guys shed any light on, um, I guess, the tokenomic design? Like, what will the token be used for exactly? I also, like, I'm curious how you guys arrived at, like, the 28% allocation for the team and, and early investors. That just seems pretty generous uh, in terms of, like, I, I guess, industry standards. Normally, it's closer to 50% or so. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, addressing that part, like... I think ultimately it kind of depends on the size of the team, um, the resources that have been put into it. We raised a decent amount of capital last year from investors. And, you know, as you alluded to early in the podcast, 
you know, we started off in Terra. We went through all of the Terra DPEG. We went through all of the events around FTX last year, other centralized exchanges, blockchains having problems, protocols going to shit, getting hacked. And through all of that, our investors have been very supportive, calm, um, helped us move forward, helped connect us to people. And the team has done the same. And frankly, in the midst of all that, to build a great product. And, you know, I think today we're like top three for volume on perp taxes. Um, I, I, th I think it's a highly justifiable amount. You look at what's going to the community and how we're looking to spread it. I think, I think it makes sense. So I, I feel no need to justify that really. I think it's kind of fully warranted. In terms of the um, tokenomics, um, it's a governance token. So it will have some voting power um, given the technical sort of basis of the exchange. Obviously, a lot of that will probably be on a um, recommended basis only. It's not going to be like totally enforceable because it's just inappropriate for um, like a community to decide on, say, risk metrics for an exchange or anything else. So we have to think carefully about how that gets handled. But then on the um, economic side, so the plan is to put elements of token of the exchange revenue back into the token. So haven't quite fixed the percentage yet, but um, basically there'll be like a USDC payment weekly into token staking and that would be users be incentivized to stake and partake in governance and receive some dollars. I also noticed in the docs, it said that it could potentially be used to pay for, uh, you know, baskets of uh, assets that are acquired via liquidation. And then the subsequent VRTX payment would be burned potentially. Um, I also saw another burn mechanism that is like, if incentives go above $10 million in a given month, then the excess is burned as well. And I also saw potentially paying for trading fees in VRTX with VRTX getting burned as well. Is that like still where your head is at in terms of token design or is what you guys laid out more so just general ideas for now? Cause the token's obviously not live. I think they were, it was more like a general idea space. I think as things have evolved, I think my head's come to a place where, you know, working back, paying for fees, it's a little bit circular because we get paid in USDC. The USDC goes to stakers, people buy the token to then earn the staking yield. It's a similar way around to like paying in the fee in Verta. You know what I mean? It, it just complicates the mechanism while achieving the same thing. So I'm not sure um, asking Alwyn and the backend team to make that work has that much value. Um, similar thing with the baskets. Uh, what was the second thing? Uh, in terms of capping the amount of the amount of tokens issued, um, that is something. Yeah, I think we will seriously look at. Um, it might not be in place in the first instance, but if we see that like we're doing volumes such that you know that becomes a huge excessive amount of token we're issuing every month we'll probably put a mechanism in place to control for it i think 
the lesson learned from DYDX was those incentives were really insane at one point. Um, and so there are probably ways we can make that better and benefit token holders other than just issuing like $50 million of incentives in a month. How do you think about the dynamics uh, of incentivizing both, you know, both traders and market makers in this model, right? Because you kind of need both to make this this ecosystem run. Uh, so, how do you think about the balance that you need to, to have at play here? Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, obviously, like you need to have a. You know, it's like any market. You need to have a supply and you need to have demand. If you don't have market makers, you don't have a market. And if you don't have price takers, you don't have someone to like help arbitrage, push the price around, do various things, right? Just take risk and add value by crossing bid offer. Um, I think more simply, like you can think of the token as like a way of, it's a way of like denoting membership of the exchange. So if you look at like an old exchange, like a CME or the, Cbo or Cbot, right? Back in the day, not as they are now, but back in the day, they would have uh, seats on the board. So um, if you were a trading firm at the CME, you'd have an exchange membership and that exchange membership would give you certain benefits. Yes, you'd get some proportion of the exchange's revenues, but you'd also get the ability to participate in um, exchange decision-making, what products were going to get listed, how risk was managed, whether other firms were let in, what would happen, all these sorts of things, right? With our token, we can create a similar thing. And like all exchanges, members will conduct different activities. So yes, market makers are huge and they get like a special designation because they supply the liquidity, but then you've got all these participants who come in and are trading professionally or they, you know, in the case of crypto, a lot of these are going to be retail, right? But they come in and trade and do things. Um, so, you know, maybe they're doing a cash and carry trade. They're trying to capture a spot put basis, or they're just doing a pairs trade or whatever it is. They might just be taking direction because they think Doge is going to the moon and they're going to go 10X leverage and see it go up. Whatever it is, doesn't matter. All those guys add value. And in return, they get the token. So it's just a way of increasing the expected value of trading on Vertex. Right now, it's extremely positive EV to come and trade with us. Every trade you do, even if you marginally lose money from a fee basis, you should be making cash trading with Vertex. We want you to make money. Super interesting. And if you think about like a, an original spot decks, like, you know, say on Ethereum, for example, like, Trading was never what was what was incentivized. It was always the LP side. So getting that liquidity in because there was like sort of a necessity, you know, for traders to have to come to the protocol and trade anyways. And I think about the perp landscape that we've seen that be much different. You know, we've seen a lot of perp dexes use incentive programs to get traders in the door. Uh, and then like the idea is kill, build, just building a badass product that they stay for. Uh, but on the other, like, does that logic still translate here? Like, will market maker, makers kind of always need to be incentivized or can you build a system to which that they're going to be making money as well? Um, and such that like, that's what keeps them coming forever. Not necessarily the fact that they're getting additional incentives. Um, yeah. yeah. I, feel like the, uh, I feel like the main distinction between spot and purpose that like, um, perp mostly happens on order books and spot still like happens mostly on AMMs on chain. Um, so on order books, it just doesn't really make sense to like 
for people to throw money into like a giant pile and to incentivize that. Um, in terms of Vertex or whatever, it's like zero fucking effort for them to just like keep it on and to keep providing liquidity. And if they're like, you know, good at market making, they should just continue making money. So like why turn off something that's like making money? Um, so that's like just the general idea. Hopefully the market makers stay after incentives. Um, because they've already paid like the fixed cost to get connected. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense actually. Plus the 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 maker rebates and zero maker fees definitely doesn't hurt. Um, who are some of your market maker partners? I mean, I think it's well known that Wintermute were uh, participating in our ecosystem. They made a we had a strategic strategic round with them. They put small investment in um, and are market making with us, but then. You know, if you look at our round last year, um, it's hard for me to give all the names that market make with us. So I'll tell you who invested with us. Um, our investors included like Dexterity, JST, Hudson River, Jane Street, GSR. Um, so not all of those are market making with us, but some of them are. Uh, and we have a bunch of other firms are market making as well. I think what's interesting is um, depending on the market, uh, we have more market makers that participate in BTC and ETH and slightly fewer that do the alt markets, which sort of mirrors most exchanges. We're starting to see market makers come now. They've seen our volumes um, on various stats and stuff and people are seeing us competing. We're now seeing other market makers join in. So we started with about five market makers. That's growing. I think there are 10 that are active across different products at the moment. Okay. And now the the end goal for Vertex, it feels like to me at least, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is ultimately to complete with like centralized exchanges. Like you guys aren't necessarily decentralization maxis, but you're more so product maxis. Like you just want to enable a really good trading experience you get on a centralized exchange with the added benefit of, you know, self-custody and a little bit more decentralization than you'd get uh, on a sex and, and maybe avoiding implosions of FTX. So I guess what features do you want to launch over the next 12 months that help you achieve that goal? Yeah, I think the in terms of like pure product, um, huge one is cross chain, which we already sort of spoke about. Um, I think figuring out wallet UX would be really important. Um, I think just the pure nature of having a non-custodial wallet puts a lot of users off so probably need to engage with using account abstraction on some level to create say like a vertex smart account where people can just log in with their email have an account and just feels like logging into any web 2 company but in the background you own your wallet and you you know that those assets are segregated away from the rest of the exchange um I think probably we need to look at a few little feature things like um, isolated margin, even though I kind of personally think it's dumb. Some users want to use it. So you got to give the people what they want. Um, can you think of anything else, Alan? What am I missing? Uh, yeah, I would say those are the main things. Oh, I think it would be interesting to think about how does one like really... How do you really neatly integrate like a fiat on ramp and off ramp? That's probably like one of the big things that people use centralized exchanges for. 
Um, and I think until you have that on Vertex, you're always going to have some element of friction. You've got to go somewhere else to get your crypto before you can then trade on Vertex. That's very suboptimal. We really want to own the user from start to end. So how do you put that into our package? So these are the sort of things we think about. Yeah. That, that's awesome, guys. I, I really love that analysis there. As, as Andrew, generally, your approach of kind of figuring out what are the trade-offs that we need today to, to make a product great in, in crypto. So you know, thanks a lot for joining us today. This was an exciting conversation. Uh, can you just give us some thoughts on where to, where to find you or where to find more about the protocol Vertex? Best place to find me is on Twitter, um, at Darius Tobai, uh, T-A-P-A-I. I recommend following Alwyn. He is excellent when he chooses to put something out. My first name and my last name. Just pure at Alwyn Peng. And then um, at Vertex underscore protocol. Um, so yeah, you can follow us there or join the Discord. And um, yeah, if you've got any questions, we pride ourselves on having pretty decent user support. So there's a good team working on Discord to help with any problems uh, and just come and use the product. Awesome. Sounds great, man. Well, we'll be sure to link to the Vertex as well in, in the show notes and in the project docs as well. So thanks again for coming on, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us.